This podcast was produced and recorded by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church of Ocala, Florida. This is a collection of sermons and talks by our founding pastor, Ted Strawbridge. These recordings were salvaged from cassette tapes dating back to the 90s. We hope you enjoy. We're really going to concentrate in chapter 4, but I want to read through, if you'll follow along, the story of what goes on in chapter 3 really is the backdrop for what goes on in chapter 4. So I'll read, first of all, through chapter 3, but our primary concentration will be in chapter 4. Jonah, as you remember from last week, was just spewed up onto the ground, um, however that happened. And Jonah chapter 3 begins, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go all through it. Jonah started into the city going a day's journey, and he proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently unto God. Let him give up their evil ways, and let their, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word this morning, it is not uh, your word before us, but it's us before your word. 
And we pray, O Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us what you would have us to know. Father, that you would preserve us, that you would guard us, that by your Holy Spirit you would cause us to know and understand. Lord, we pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. So, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Jonah 4, you've already seen this. What this is right now is I'm going to give you lessons. I'm going to give you instruction on how to stand out there on the street, what we are to do. Turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Keep your finger in Jonah here. I'm going to stick a sheet of paper in there. Somebody said this week, one of the more true things I've heard since I've been in Ocala. She said, I've been here for a while and I keep waiting for you to make a point. (laughs) Excellent statement. I don't know what you people are doing sharing in here. You know you can't do that in a Presbyterian church, but how could I stop it? Um, Psalm 139. Thank you. Middle of the Bible. Mine already has markings where I'm reading. This is the way you should be when you stand out there on the street today. Verse 19 of Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Should you stand there on the streets like that? Yes, yes, you should. But you have to take the whole of Scripture together. Keep reading. Keep listening to what David says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do we stand and proclaim something to this culture? Do we hate those who hate God? In some senses, yes, we do. But you can't have 139, 19 through 22 without 23 through 24. You've already heard the sermon this morning. Uh, Your life can be a contrast. That's my first point. That is a point. Your life can be a contrast. It comes from the Scripture. It is a point. Your life can be a contrast. We had a great time in Sunday school class before church. Last week was horrible. We've got high schools through middle school, so we've got all kinds of different age groups of kids, and there's like 25 of us crammed into my office. We're in there like sardines, and, and I'm teaching this point, and they're obviously not getting it. So the, being the wise person that I am, I teach it harder and louder, so they you know, shrink back a little more. We're sweating to death. It was terrible. So we spent this morning just getting to know each other a little bit. We're talking about prayer. How can you pray for people if you don't know them? What we've done in worship this morning was gotten to know each other a little bit. And as our little church, we don't have a Sunday night fellowship yet. Maybe eventually we will. Depends on how we want to use the Lord's Day and how the families use the Lord's Day. But in my life, Sunday night fellowship has been more like what we did in here. Um, being able to share, being able to stop. We can do that on Sunday mornings. We need to get to know each other. Um, When we come to the Scripture, what we find here is a call in the life of Jonah, but it's a very careful call. Your life can be a contrast. Go back. I lost my place. Go back to the book of Jonah.
And I would say again, uh, more seriously, your life can be a contrast. You remember what we talked about in Jonah chapter 2. The, the, uh, come here, Ross. When you tell the story of Jonah and you, and you uh, tell it to your children, you need to understand that you need to help them understand. Would you lay down here on the floor? Thank you. Okay, when you tell the story of Jonah to your children, you need to tell it like this. Okay? You need to help them understand what the story of what's going on with Jonah and the whale. Jonah is under discipline. So when you tell the story, don't be so happy. You've got to help them understand. There was, like we said last week, there was no lazy boy recliner inside this fish. Jonah was under discipline. God trained him. Thank you, Ross. Now see, if I told the story of Jonah and the whale while I had my foot on Ross's chest, he would begin to remember okay, that it's a story about discipline. Discipline, discipline. And Jonah cries out in thanksgiving, not after he spewed out on the ocean, on the shore, like we want to think. He doesn't cry out in thanksgiving because now the discipline's over. Boy, that was horrible. I'm glad that's done with. Jonah cries out in thanksgiving right in the middle of discipline. Right in the midst of God saying, little boy, you need some time to learn here. Sit in this fish for a while, son. Have some gastric juice for supper. And remember that I am Yahweh. And when I call you to go to a city and preach repentance, you go. And when I save, I save who I want to save. And when I curse, I curse who I want to curse. And it's not your job to choose. And in the middle of Jonah being in the belly of this fish, he wakes up and he says, you know, last winter I went skiing and my son, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and God preserved me. You understand what I'm saying? Somewhere in the middle of this fish, the light bulb comes on and Jonah says, Yahweh's in control. What in the world was I thinking? And he recounts how he was thrown overboard and how desperate he was. You remember that it's the sailors who wanted not to throw Jonah overboard. Jonah says, cast me into the sea and the sea will grow calm for you. And the sailors turn around and they row harder and they row harder to get back against the shore. They are not willing to give up. Jonah is like us. At this point, he's run from the Lord. He's emotionally distressed. He's physically exhausted. He's worn out. And he says, I don't care if I die. You throw me into the sea. And that'll solve your problems. I want you to know that this is not a moment of glory in Jonah's life. He is not saying here, sacrifice me and you will be saved. He's saying, my life is so rotten stinking, you throw me overboard and let's get it over with. And then Yahweh will take care of you. And he's thrown overboard, and you remember he tells that psalm of thanksgiving inside the belly of the fish. He retells the story. Oh, Lord, the breakers swirled around me, and I went down. I went down a little lower, and the seaweed wrapped around my head. And in the midst of my distress, I cried out to you. We said this is a psalm of thanksgiving. A psalm of thanksgiving that Jonah is praying to the Lord in the midst of discipline. Psalm of thanksgiving, first of all, he recounts the distress. And secondly, he gains assurance. And thirdly, he thanks the Lord. And fourthly, he makes a vow of commitment of his life to God. My first point here is, your life can be a contrast. And I want you to see from Jonah chapter 2, 
in the midst of discipline, in the midst of the belly of the fish, Jonah 2.9, uh, Jonah cries out, salvation belongs to Yahweh. I will make good my vows. And you have a new man, and he's refreshed, and he's spit up onto the shore. Listen to what it says. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. But I, in the middle of the fish, but I with a song of thanksgiving. I think Jonah came to such a place that he said, Yes, Lord, yes. I'm sorry I went away. I'm sorry you had to throw me over the sea. And Lord, if I never get out of this fish again, I want to know, oh, Father, I adore you. That's what Jonah was like. Jonah chapter 2. He spit out onto the ground. Now your life can be a contrast. Point one. Jonah's life was a contrast. Jonah is called again to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach against it. I said before, I'm a chicken. I came to Ocala. Ocala is not life-threatening. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. It was in Jonah's day the most powerful of all the evil empires in the entire known world at the time. There was a wall that stood 100 feet tall around the city of Nineveh, and three chariots could race abreast on top of a 100-foot wall. It was a big city. It was a powerful city. And we talked about how evil the Assyrians had been. We talked about the way that they made war against people and their brutal uh, treatment of children and, and wives and women, etc., etc. But essentially, that stuff has been going on for a long, long time, and it continues to go on today. So it's not like the Assyrians were terribly, terribly different than us. But at any rate... So Jonah, what I would say here, my point is that your life can be a contrast. Jonah's life was a contrast. We find him rejoicing in the belly of this whale, determined now to go and to be obedient to the Lord. And then he comes to Nineveh. He walks in. He's not afraid. He's not afraid. He's not afraid. We're scared to talk to our neighbors. Jonah, empowered by the Spirit, walks into this town and preaches repentance, walks right through the middle of town. Now, some of you know uh, many of my faults. It's hard not to. Um, Arrogance and pride can be one. You think it's a problem now. Just think what it would be like if I breezed into Ocala and I preached for one day and word got out and the whole city came to repentance. Well, that's not really fair. Let's say I went to Atlanta and the whole state of Georgia comes to repentance. Let's say I went to Washington, D.C. Okay, Monty wants to send me. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And Bill Clinton and Hillary repent. And Bill Clinton makes a proclamation, and he says, everywhere in our country today, we're going to stop work. There will be no work on this day. We're going to shut down every piece of equipment, every machinery, every person, every dog, every cat will not eat. We're going to fast the entire day. We're going to apologize to Yahweh, and we're going to beg Him to forgive us. Now, besides the Bill Clinton stuff, what do you think I would be like? Well, I certainly wouldn't speak with any of (laughs) y'all. Okay. 
that is not Jonah's reaction. I would say here that your life can be a contrast, and that's what you see in the life of Jonah. He goes from tremendous thanksgiving to faithful obedience to tremendous results, and look in Jonah 4, verse 1. How did he feel about that? But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said would happen before? This is why I ran away, because you're not ever going to punish these stinking rotten people. You know how evil they are. But there you go, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Way to go, God. Okay, you see how Jonah even tries to turn the Scripture against Yahweh himself. Because he doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wants them punished. Now, so here we come to the point, to, to a point today. The writer wants us to see this contrast in Jonah's life. He wants us to say, how could this person gone through this tremendous discipline, Yahweh's preservation of him in the middle of this fish, how can his life be such a song of thanksgiving and, and such... Oh, just a childlike selfishness and resentment. You see that he's forgotten the grace that was extended to him. Jonah chapter 3 begins, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah again a second time. All the way through this book, Yahweh is a God of grace, and Jonah is not responding. And Jonah wants these people punished. It's as if we went around this room and we stood up and we told stories of how good God was for us. Knowing that we didn't deserve it. Knowing that we didn't earn it. Knowing that our own sinfulness warrants only wrath and judgment from Yahweh. And yet He chose to love us. We sang this song, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? Now, you know I love to play at Mary Lou's, my in-laws. I mean, that's what in-laws are good for. We sang that one time, and Mary Lou's dad said, I don't know how you'll sing that funeral song, 19 verses that thing, over and over and over again. And some of you may have felt the same way. Don't tell me. It won't be good for me to know that. Um, I sat in chapel and watched 14 Korean men sing that song with tears running down their faces. If you haven't come to the place in your life where your statement is not, how can it be that I should gain mercy from Yahweh? Uh, I just heard Ray Cortese, you know, he's pastor in, in uh, Seven Rivers over in Lacanto, tell a story of a home group of homosexuals, 600 homosexuals, who came together to celebrate their coming out of that situation as a part of their conversion. By being converted, God released them. And as a group, they sang, and they stopped singing, and the whole place erupted when they came to the verse that said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose a dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And they couldn't sing the verse. They just stopped. When I come up here and preach, I'm not worried so much that there's glit and glamour and all that kind of stuff because my life is so cruddy. 
if God hadn't preserved me this far, if, if He doesn't preserve me in this next half hour, I'm not going to make it anyway. I tried being fancy before. I tried keeping up with everybody else. I tried being perfect. And I couldn't do it. And in the midst of that, Yahweh came to me and He said, I love you. And He made me His. What do I care what you all think? Last week, somebody, somebody came to me and they said, you know, Lordy was leading the hymns, but you know, his microphone, we couldn't really hear him. All we could hear was you. And I said, yeah, I know. Sorry about that. But when I sing, um, what is that hymn, When Peace Like a River, that uh, Horatio Spafford wrote, you know, the story behind that hymn that his, his wife and children were drowned and he left from Georgia and was sailing back to England. And when they came to a certain point, the captain of the ship came to him and he said, we think this is about where your, your wife and children were washed overboard. It was somewhere near here. We can't be really sure, but we think this is about where it was. And he sat down and wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the best verse in the whole thing is my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Or something like that. It's well with my soul. And when I come to that hymn, you can't sing that hymn without screaming. I can't pay attention to who's out here. You don't know the burden that I carried for so long. And Jesus came along and lifted it. And when he comes back and I see him, what I want to say is, oh, I was under such bondage. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you pulled me out of it when nobody else could. I'm so thankful that perhaps my children might be coming back. I'm so thankful that you got me a job. I'm so thankful, et cetera, et cetera, for all the things that we talked about this morning. Jonah had that kind of thanks in Jonah chapter 2. In Jonah chapter 4, he's in utter contrast because he's bitter, because he sees other people who are being blessed and forgiven, and he wants to know how come they got forgiveness. And I would say that your life can be a contrast just like that. On one hand, you can stand and say, thank you, Jesus, I didn't deserve it. On the other hand, you turn to someone else and you judge them. The psalmist says, I hate those who God hates. But, he goes on to say, search me, O God, and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. And yet, I would contend that when Jesus did that, there was a difference between the kind of um, discipline that he served to those men and the kind that we picture. We think he just went along and beat these people. And I think he did it with tremendous uh, weeping and sadness in his heart. And should one of them have said, Oh, I'm sorry, I think he would have knelt and grabbed the guy and hugged him and brought him back. We talked about what a tough call Jonah got, how brutal the Assyrians were, and he comes to the capital of the Assyrians and he preaches repentance and they repent and he wants them punished. And so God teaches life. Your life can be a contrast, but God will show you. God will show you. Jonah goes up on the east side of the city and he sits up on a hill and he builds a shelter. <clears throat> 
And Jonah says, Now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, simple question, verse 4, chapter 4, Do you have any right to be angry? You who have experienced the blessings of God, do you have any right to be angry for anything that any other human being has done? Do you consider yourself more worthy than they? Do you consider the wrong that you've done in your life less evil than theirs? Do you have any right to be angry? God says to Jonah, let me teach you a little lesson. And so Jonah's sitting there and God has this gourd, this vine. Apparently it, there, really was, there really were vines that in a matter of 48 hours could grow to the kind of length. So this may not have even been a miraculous thing, but it certainly was providential. Okay? God causes this gourd to grow up and it shades Jonah. Oh, he's so thankful for the shade. And then he sends a worm that eats the gourd and then goes down. Now Jonah's mad again. And God sends a blazing sun and the wind. And Jonah's really ticked off. And God says, do you have any right to be angry about this gourd? You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. What right do you have to be angry? He's not concerned about the gourds. Verse 10, the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from the left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? First point, your life can be a life of contrast because you can experience God's grace and you can project judgment onto other people without remembering the grace that you've received. Second point, God will show you His own simple time. He will show you. Sometimes He'll withhold His hand and you'll feel again the coldness that you knew before you came to Christ. And you'll struggle around and you'll want to do things and so you'll busy your life and He'll withhold His hand until finally you come and you say, I'm sorry. Uh, there's a euphemism, a Hebraism, a Hebraism, a euphemistic saying, a something or other, a figure of speech. In this paragraph, when it talks about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, who is it that don't know their right hand from their left? Children. God says, Jonah, you're so frustrated, you want me to come and wipe out these people. It's not enough that I've been gracious to you. Wouldn't you even consider that there are 120,000 children in that city and you just want them wiped out? We were telling stories, learning how to pray by telling stories. And so we went to the story of Abram and his wife and then the sending out of Hagar. And she goes out with her child and she's going to starve to death. because she says, I can't bear to watch him die. And she falls down and she prays. And we talked about how Hagar was a bad figure. Hagar was an Egyptian. <gasps> Israelites, everything about Egypt is evil for them. And one of the students in the class said, now wait a minute, you're telling me that we can tell this story about how God remembered Hagar, but you've also told us that Hagar was a negative figure. How can that be? Ah, exactly. You got it. You understand? Your Heavenly Father loves people 
even that are evil. Samuel played soccer in Augusta. It was a good thing for him because his soccer coach was an excellent coach, a disciplined man, organized man, well-trained, and loved the kids. He also owned three bars. And he had a pretty raucous uh, past. Now Samuel's in a quandary. Wait a minute. How can my good coach, how can Coach Dan own a bar? Everybody that has bars, they're all evil. They're all bad all the time. Surely God wouldn't like a person who had a bar. You see, Yahweh, in relationship to Hagar, who was a negative character in the stories that Moses tells, Yahweh even loves those people that are evil in some way. Yahweh says to Jonah, have you even considered that there are 120,000 people in that city who don't know the right hand from the left and many cattle as well? Yahweh's love extends to those filthy, rotten Assyrians and even to their cows. Your life can be a life of contrast because you can receive God's grace and withhold it from other people. This is a message in some ways of how to stand on the street corner this afternoon. To stand on the street corner and to oppose abortion and to be pro-life. At the same time, you cannot allow your own bitterness and resentment towards the abortionists, towards the baby killers. You cannot call people feminazis We've talked about that in here before. You cannot hate those people that God loves even as he brings judgment upon them. Uh, The story of Jonah is this story. Your life can be a life of contrast too, but God will show you. He'll find you out. He'll, He'll let you know it, and he may just leave you there. Listen to this. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith of Providence. As for those... Make sure I read the right part. No, that's not it. Yeah. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts. That is, God leaves his own children. You hear that? to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of the heart that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for support upon himself and to make them more watchful in the future against all occasions of sin. What the confession says is God in the Holy Scripture is revealed to one as one who loves us and cares for us, but he's perfectly willing. If you begin to resist him or to withhold his grace from other people, or to hate other people, he's perfectly willing to withhold himself from you just for a little while so that you'll feel again the coldness of your own sin. Not to punish you, but so that you'll be encouraged, be reminded again for the seriousness, the dreadfulness of sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the scripture. Uh, We thank you for this story of Jonah. Um, 
an ambivalent character who seems tremendous at one point and then desperately wicked, uh, not so much wicked, but desperately cold-hearted on the other. Father, would you by your spirits come and examine our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us. Could it be, Father, that we have received such grace from you and yet we're unwilling to extend that grace to other people? Could it be, Father, that we have judged evil uh, maliciously, people that you have judged evil longingly with a tear in your heart at their destruction? Father, could it be that we've rejoiced over the destruction of another, a person that we didn't make, we didn't tend, we didn't water, we didn't breathe into him the very breath of life as you did? What business would it be of ours to rejoice at their destruction? We confess as a congregation, we confess as a family, we confess as individuals that we, O oh Lord, have gone beyond where you are and we've hated and rejected other people. Father, we pray that you would remove those passions from us and give us instead such a love for you and a rejoicing at your grace in our hearts that we long to see other people come to that same graciousness. We pray these things in the faithful name of Christ. Amen.